All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Critical Care Scenarios podcast. Um, I am Brandon Odo, um, back here with Brian Bowling. Hey. Um, and we are really pleased to give you episode five, and we're going to be giving you another guest today. Um, one of our favorite people. We're going to have Brendan Reardon for you, and um, some of you may know him. Um, He's a very active uh, Twitter account at uh, Concernicus, but um, he's a, a cardiothoracic critical care PA. Uh, he works over at the University of Washington. Um, he did a, a postgrad fellowship uh, at Emory, and he's got a lot of interest in managing shock, you know, both pharmacologically and uh, mechanically, and uh, is a particularly ardent defender of the right ventricle. So we'll see how he does what he does. Um, Brian, you want to take us away? Yeah, sure. So, uh, Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Nice to be here. All right. So, um, I'm reaching back into my cardiothoracic and cardiac critical care uh, experience to, to craft a scenario uh, that hopefully will not be completely ridiculous. <laughs> so, uh, so, you're dealing with a 45-year-old gentleman who comes into the ED with crushing substernal chest pain. Always a good way to start a cardiac scenario. Uh, what you know of this gentleman is he's got a history of hypertension, coronary artery disease, diabetes, uh, hyperlipidemia, and some COPD. Uh, he's what we would call Kentucky healthy. Uh, so he shows up in the ED. He's got 10 out of 10 chest pain. He's hypotensive, diaphoretic. He's got pale, cool extremities, uh, and then suddenly he, he begins vomiting, and the ED intubates him for airway protection. Uh, 12-lead EKG shows widespread ST depression, most prominently in leads 1, 2, and then the V4 through V6 leads, uh, with some marked, I mean, like marked ST elevation in lead AVR. It's a STEMI. Uh, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> so you See, you thought you were going to embarrass yourself. Uh, so, so what do you want to do with this gentleman? What do I want to do with him? Um, yeah. How is his, uh, how is his hemodynamic status? Not great. Um, he, he's slightly hypotensive map in the fifties. What is, uh, what does interventional cardiology have to say about this? They would like to intervene. <laughs> they, unsurprisingly, they have the cath lab ready to go and would like to take him there. Um, I think that's uh, that's reasonable. Uh, what um, what uh, type of escalation of support do we have available to us um, in the cath lab, or do we need to have cardiac surgery on standby? Uh, well, so cardiac surgery is sort of aware of things, um, but uh, I think you're you're pretty set for stuff. Okay, um, you know, I think can we, are we able to get an echo in the ED? Sure. So you get an echo, uh, and you, he's pretty profoundly um, hypokinetic, uh, kind of kind of globally to a certain degree, but um, but certainly his LV function is very depressed. Can you can you quantify it for me? Um, EF of say thirty percent. Thirty percent. Okay. Um, you know, based on our institution's uh, capabilities. I think it might be reasonable to um, to do a protected PCI, meaning get him to the cath lab. You know, pharmacological support uh, is acceptable, so we can start maybe just some norepinephrine to see if that uh, pressure will respond to that, and maybe some potential inotropic effects of that uh, could escalate to actually an inopressor like epinephrine. 
although it is it is an active ischemia, it's not ideal, um, but we do need to get the, the patient to some sort of definitive intervention first. So getting to the cath lab, and I think the first intervention might be to put a put a percutaneous vat in, something like an Impella CP, um, just to do some ventricular support first um, before we can actually get to the uh, resolution of the active ischemia. Okay. All right, so you're going to you're going to start him on some norepi and put an impella in. Yeah, and the I doubt uh, I doubt interventional cardiology is going to come put the impella in the ED, so I, I suspect this can all happen um, sort of congruently in route to the cath lab, get the patient on the table, um, start with the impella insertion first and then move to the PCI. Sure, okay. And your approach would be to try to get the impella and then get off the pharmacologic inotropes. Yeah, ideally, um, I mean the 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 advantage or theoretical advantage to mechanical circulatory support here would mainly be about reducing myocardial oxygen demand and, and reducing LVEDP, which the impella can do nicely um, in, in the hopes of optimizing coronary perfusion until you can release that blockage. And can you just give us a, a one-sentence reminder of the impella for those who have not spent as much time in the cardiothoracic ICU? Yeah, of course. So the impella is... Um, it's made by a company called Abiomed out of Massachusetts. It's essentially a, a microaxial um, catheter. So primarily it goes through the, through the femoral artery, um, or you can actually put them through the axillary. Um, that usually requires a, a cut down in a chimney graft, depending on the size of it. Um, it basically goes retrograde through the aorta, um, across the aortic valve. It's got two, um, for lack of a better term, holes. Um, and then this microaxial pump that spins very, very quickly um, and, and literally pulls blood out of the left ventricle and ejects it anti-grade um, on the other side of the aortic valve. So there's uh, two levels that are currently available, the CP, which can provide about four liters of flow, and the Impella 5.0, which can provide a full five liters of support. All right. And this is purely uh, support for the left heart. Correct. There is a right-sided impella available, but it's a, a separate device. You wouldn't be able to, to support both ventricles at the same time with a single device. All right. So you, uh, so you get the impella placed and you get up to the cath lab and you've got a large obstructing left main lesion. Now, interventional cardiology is able to open the lesion and place a stent, uh, but the patient remains shocky, uh, even despite uh, a little norepinephrine and despite uh, your impella, he's still um, fairly hypotensive, um, and uh, your echo is still pretty poor LV function. How is the right-sided function? Uh, it's okay right now, but it's it's beginning to look more and more um, depressed, uh, as I think your LV function is causing backup across the lungs. So, you know, with with uh, with LV's, LV failure that's not responding appropriately to um, to a partial support device, we do have a couple of options. Um, and thankfully, I'm not the guy that often has to make these decisions. But if you're starting to see evidence of biventricular failure as well, basically, you could go one of two ways. One, we could just make it easy and put the patient onto VA ECMO. So VA ECMO would be you know, a drainage cannula in the, the venous side, pulling out full flow, and then a, a return cannula in the arterial system. Usually the easiest way to do in a crash situation would be a femoral-femoral cannulation strategy. 
And that way we could provide full support. The nice thing about this situation here is we already have the Impella in place because one of the major downsides of ECMO is it increases afterload substantially. Right? It's, it's retrograde flow, it's going directly at the aortic valve, it's increasing uh, afterload substantially, and it's, it's increasing LVEDP, and it's increasing or decreasing coronary perfusion. And, um, you know, th that can actually cause the left ventricle to distend, which can give you a number of problems, including LV thrombus and, and mitral regurge, pulmonary edema, and, and decreased coronary perfusion, which basically prevents you from uh, being able to recover from your insult. So in those cases, we often sort of become standard practice now is we put in a percutaneous LVAD, like an impella in, to drain the LV. Um, to prevent that, that distension from happening. So since we already have the Impella CP in place, uh, we could just add ECMO to the situation, give biventricular support, and then hope that this is just um, myocardial stunning from, from the ischemia. The other sort of more uh, unique approach is to add right-sided support device. So we have... Um, a technique called the Tandela, which is where we put uh, a tandem heart, which is another percutaneous device. They make something called the, the Protec Duo RVAD. It's a, a single catheter, but a, but a dual lumen catheter that goes into the internal jugular vein. And uh, basically like a pulmonary artery catheter, it bypasses the pulmonic valve and sits out in the pulmonary artery and it withdraws blood from the proximal port, so venous blood, um, and then it actually runs it externally um, and then pumps it anti-grade. It doesn't oxygenate it, but it pumps it anti-grade into the pulmonary artery, so acting like a temporary RVAD. Nice thing about that is that you can subsequently retrofit a, an oxygenator onto it and turn it into a what we call an oxy-RVAD or an RVAD plus VV ECMO. And then with the existing uh, LV support in place with the Impella, then you essentially have biventricular support via those two devices. The only issue I could foresee in this particular situation with that is that you say that the LV is still not doing super great with just the Impella CP, in which case you would probably need to upgrade this to a 5.0, um, which would require a cut down. So I think for ease, um, in this particular situation, I would I would recommend that we just cannulate the patient for peripheral VA ECMO, and leave the um, the Impella CP and as a as a an LV drainage device. Okay, all right. So you uh, you in fact do that. You put them on uh, bifemoral cannulation of VV ECMO or sorry VA ECMO. Um, walk us through your initial settings. So perfusions there, and they're getting everything together. Um, what do you, for those of the people who are listening who don't manage ECMO uh, a lot or at all, what are the sort of what are the settings that you look at on the ECMO and how do you set it up initially? Sure. So one of the first things um, that you need to look at is basically predicting the amount of support that a patient will need. And for most situations, um, we just use a standard formula, which is the the patient's BSA times a factor of between 2.0 and 2.4 liters per minute, basically giving them the you know, sort of minimum cardiac output that we would um, suggest managing in cardiogenic shock. So let's say a patient has a BSA of two, 
um, we would target a flow of around four to five liters per minute. Now, because of the because of <laughs> physics, you know, the the cannula size is really important, and sometimes you're not actually able to physically get cannulas in that would manage that flow. So we actually have these these charts with with it's called pressure drops, um, and they look at it, and you know, the the, the big issues are going to be when patients have some sort of abnormal vasculature. Either they've got profound uh, peripheral vascular disease where the diameter of their, their vasculature is not uh, appropriate for their size, in which case we may have to put in smaller cannulas. But in a majority of patients, we can usually get away with um, using a standard cannula approach. And then when, so when they're physically going on, we um, get the RPMs up to about 2,000 which will give you low flow, um, and we make sure everything is okay, that there's no bubbles in the system, that there's no catastrophic changes that happen, and then we slowly increase over about one to five minutes up to the peak flow. Okay. So what other, what other settings are you concerned with? Uh, so the things we want to look at um, for hemodynamic point of view is depending on the, the patient's clinical status before you go on ECMO. So a lot of times these patients... Uh, that are crashed onto ECMO look very, very bad beforehand. They're on a lot of vasoactive support. They're on a lot of inotropes. And when you switch them to ECMO, you can, act, uh, to ECMO, you can actually make them acutely hypertensive, um, which can cause all kinds of problems in the post-cardiac surgery realm or in a post-cath realm where the patient's gotten loaded with antiplatelet agents. You can precipitate bleeding. Um, you could rupture grafts. And because the machine is so uh, afterload sensitive, acute arterial hypertension may actually cause the machine to malfunction, not be able to flow as much, um, cause more hemolysis and, and red blood cell destruction. So we want to aggressively titrate down those vedoactive supports sometimes, and we want to keep the map somewhere in the range of, of 60 to 80 millimeters of mercury. One thing, not necessarily in the hyperacute phase, but... Um, and especially not if you've already got a percutaneous device in place, but you want to sort of try to leave them with some native pulsatility. Um, and that's really to allow the LV to fully eject the aortic valve to open. Sometimes in patients who are super sick, you, you, that's not an option. Um, and that's why the impella comes in really handy. But if we can, um, we sort of target a balance in the ECMO flow um, to allow the aortic valve to open somewhat and try to get a pulse pressure of about 10. If a patient has a PA catheter, and we do look at the PA diastolic pressure, that can tell us about evidence of LV distension. Um, and we can actually potentially see mitral regurg uh, on that waveform. And then we look at our vent settings. So it's not often that um, patients will have isolated heart failure without some sort of pulmonary failure as well. Um, and we have to basically make sure that these patients don't develop significant hypoxemia or ARDS from, you know, even from, from aspiration pneumonitis, aspiration pneumonia, or uh, acute pulmonary edema. You know, you said this patient was intubated down in the ED for, I think you said for, for vomiting, is that right? Right, for airway protection and, and, and subsequent vomiting. So it sounds like this patient certainly could be at risk um, for that. One of the decisions that we have to make up front is whether we're going to put the patient on a lung protective strategy or not. And generally, if they don't have any lung disease, um, putting them on lung protective strategy actually becomes bothersome for the patient. 
because they want to breathe like normal. And uh, then you wind up having to, to uh, give them lots of extra sedation and that causes all kinds of other complications. So if they can tolerate just regular sort of ventilator settings, we will do that. Otherwise, if the patient we feel is at big risk of developing any sort of respiratory failure or they have it already, we will put them on a super lung protective strategy. Uh, the traditional one that we use is pressure control ventilation uh, at a rate of 10, a, um, a inspiratory pressure of 10, a PEEP of 10, and a FiO2 of 40%. And then we adjust ventilation using the sweep gas on the ECMO, and we adjust oxygenation basically using the flow as tolerated, and then we can supplement with inspired oxygen if, uh, if they need additional. Okay. What about heparin? Now, this patient's gotten, like you said, they've gotten a load of clopidogrel, uh, and probably aspirin as well. What about heparin in these patients? Mm -hmm. Do you heparinize your ECMO patients? We do, and we actually heparinize them when we're cannulating. Um, okay. So our, our surgeon, our primary ECMO surgeon, um, will basically get the wires in for cannulation first, and then they'll give a bolus of heparin, usually 5,000 uh, to up to 15,000 units of heparin, depending on the case. In this case, being that they were treated as a STEMI first, I'm going to presume that they got heparin or started on heparin in the ED or in the cath lab, um, and then probably got heparinized for their catheterization as well. So we may not um, give them the bolus, depending. That'll be, that'll be the cannulator's preference. Um, but then, yeah, we will immediately start them on um, a continuous heparin infusion post-cannulation to prevent thrombosis. Okay. And do you titrate that to a given PTT or do you use anti-10A levels or how do you manage that? So we just switched actually when I first arrived. Um, actually, it, 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 ironically, at Emory, we were using anti-10A anti level monitoring or heparin level monitoring. Uh, and then when I came to, to the University of Washington, we were using primarily PTT. Um, but we were running into these problems where we were having um, bleeding issues with super therapeutic PTTs. And if you look into it, the, there's much more lab interference uh, of PTT than there is anti-10A. And um, so we did a pilot project where we were pairing anti-10A and PTT monitoring. And then ultimately we have switched over completely to anti-10A monitoring. And we have three ranges that we use. Normal, if a patient um, isn't have any bleeding risk, which is pretty rare in uh, in our clinical situation. We can run an anti 10A level of 0.3 to 0.7, um, and these are nursing driven protocols, and they can make adjustments to the to the heparin drip based on a, an algorithm. A, so somewhat risk, but lower risk of bleeding. Um, we'll go uh, 0.3 to or sorry, slightly higher risk of bleeding. We'll do 0.3 to 0.5, and then in patients who are very high risk of bleeding, you know, in our, our post-cardiac surgery population or patients who have had to go back on bypass or have had prolonged uh, hemorrhagic shock intra-op, we'll, we'll even sometimes run them at a, an ultra-low 0.1 to 0.3. All right. Now, theoretically, if you're, if you're running full, like five liters of flow, you can, you can get away with no anticoagulation for a given amount of time, correct? Yes. Um, and we have to sort of draw a balance. So if we have 
you know, life-threatening bleeding or, or patients who've been bleeding, you know, epistaxis for 24 to 48 hours, um, it is reasonable to pause that heparin temporarily. Um, but not anticoagulating, I think, lowers the potential lifespan of the circuit. Um, it does does increase risk of thrombosis and, you know, potentially needing circuit exchanges. And that's not something that you want to do in a patient who is dependent on ECMO. Sure. Now, do you guys use heparin-bonded catheters and circuits? We do. Um, I'm almost positive that there is no such thing as a non-heparin-bonded circuit anymore. Okay. Yeah, and we have had a, a couple of cases where patients have developed HIT while on ECMO, um, and we have successfully treated those patients with, with bivalirudin instead. You don't need to get them away from the heparin in the circuit? So... <laughs> I'm not entirely sure, you know, we, there's no way we can, um, is the, is the short answer, um, because those, those non-heparin bonded circuits don't exist anymore. Um, but it seems that the, the bivalirudin is enough to prevent, um, additional complications from happening. All right. So, um, all right. So you, you get him on to ECMO and he's stable, we'll say, uh, up in the ICU. Uh, you had mentioned the potential for, uh, hypertension. Uh, now that he's on ECMO, um, how how do you you're weaning your you're weaning your vasopressors and inotropes? Uh, you said for a map around sixty to seventy. Was that right? Sixty to eighty. Yeah. Sixty to eighty. Okay. Um, okay. So now he's up in the ICU. What's your what's your plan moving forward as far as trying to wean the impella and or the ECMO and or the ventilator? So um, it really depends on this on the clinical situation. Um, one of the things that, one of the most telling signs that someone is actually starting to recover is when they get hypertensive um, and they actually start generating pulsatility in spite of the amount of flow that's coming back at the, the heart. Another way that we can tell that someone is starting to recover is if they develop this phenomenon of regional hypoxemia. We don't actually ever really know where the mixing cloud is. And when I say mixing cloud, what I mean is that the hyperoxygenated blood that's being returned retrograde in the aorta and the relatively hypoxemic blood that's being oxygenated by the ventilator that's being natively ejected from the ventricle. So depending on someone's pulsatility, that can be all the way up near the, near the takeoff of the coronary arteries or in somebody who's regained a lot of pulsatility, that can be somewhere down in the mid-descending aorta. So the easiest way to tell is we actually sample our oxygen levels from the right upper extremity. Because what that does is it tells us what is oxygenating the um, brachiocephalic artery. So because that's the closest thing that we can really sample to the heart, if we are seeing relatively hypoxemic blood in the right upper extremity, that tells us that the mixing cloud is beyond the takeoff of the brachiocephalic. Does that make sense? Sure. It's a little bit hard to just kind of think word-wise. It's much easier to see in an illustration if the blood that's being ejected out of the left ventricle is making its way at least to the takeoff of the brachiocephalic, then that will reflect the oxygen level that's being delivered by the ventilator rather than by the oxygenator of the ECMO circuit. So if somebody, if all of a sudden my, my specialist or my perfusionist is telling me that we have, that the right upper extremity is hypoxemic, you know, the tendency is to kind of freak out, but 
at the same time, it's great. <laughs> it means that the patient is actually ejecting. Um, and so there may be some recovery of the, uh, of the ventricle. So what you need to do is make sure that the patient is not actually hypoxic in that. And if they are, then you start uh, optimizing the lung support. So going up on the FIL2, going up on the PEEP, changing them over to regular vent settings, um, potentially um, uh, adding on adjunctive agents like epoprostenol or nitric oxide. Um, and then if you're really in trouble where um, you could potentially do a hybrid mode, something like VAV ECMO, where you add on uh, return cannula into the venous system, or if the patient's recovered enough, uh, the native function, you may actually be able to switch them from, from VA over to, uh, to just VV. All right. So you mentioned assess the hypoxia. So you're, you're assessing to make sure it's not, that it's not differential hypoxia, right? You're assessing to make sure that the patient really is hypoxic. Um, how do you do that? If you're, if your SATs and your, uh, PAO2 that you're sampling from the right upper extremity, uh, are poor, how do you know, how do you differentiate between, uh, this sort of North South syndrome and genuine hypoxia? It's a great question. Um, and hypoxemia is actually super easy to manage on VA ECMO because it's only one of two things. One, it's regional hypoxemia or North-South syndrome, uh, or two, it's oxygenator failure. So the easiest way to assess for this is to actually look at the color of the blood in the cannulas. So if your oxygenator is failing, <laughs> your blood that's being returned from the ECMO circuit is not going to be bright red with a PO2 of you know, three to 500 anymore. Now it's gonna look deoxygenated. So that's the really poor man's way to do it, um, which is very easy. Uh, and things that can cause oxygenator failure, you know, some things about actually like catastrophic oxygenator failure where the circuit actually fails. Um, but other things like if the, the actual tubing becomes disconnected from the oxygenator, which happens sometimes, you know, if we transport a patient and we switch them over to a portable O2 tank and then come back and nobody switches that tank back or it becomes disconnected or it becomes knocked off or somebody accidentally turns the sweep gas flow all the way down to zero, then there's no oxygen going into the circuit. If you're really concerned about oxygenator failure, you can sample uh, a post-oxygenator ABG. So that's taken off the port of the actual ECMO circuit. It's not ideal. And you can potentially you know, introduce air into the uh, arterial side of the system, which in ECMO would actually automatically shut the system off, which is suboptimal. Uh, the other thing you could do is actually just sample from the left upper extremity. So put a, put a SpO2 probe on the left upper extremity or get an ABG from the left. And if you have this uh, regional hypoxemia, then the, the one on the right, uh, sorry, the one on the left should be significantly higher oxygen content than the one on the right. All right, so let's assume that um, things are going well uh, and you're, you're rounding and you get a call from the nurse saying that uh, you have this um, hypoxemia, right? Your SpO2 is 85%. Um, based on what you've said, I assume you're, you're looking at all of these things trying to differentiate. Is this a regional hypoxemia or a global? Uh, and let's say you, you sort of determine it is, it is a regional hypoxemia. What are, what do you do about that? Right? Because you can't just, like you said, the, you know, the right upper extremity is the, if the SpO2 on measured from there is poor, 
you, you potentially have uh, coronary hypoxemia, uh, maybe even cerebral ischemia, uh, depending on where that uh, that mixing point is. So, what do you do, what do you do about this regional hypoxemia? Yeah. So the first thing the first thing I want to do is I want to differentiate between hypoxemia and hypoxia. You know, so there's there's plenty of patients who are walking around with with low levels of oxygen. You know, and in in ARDSnet we we target a a, a SAT of 85%. We tolerate that. But we, we have to look for evidence of, of ischemia. So if we're seeing, you know, EKG changes or we're seeing, we're seeing lactate formation or things like that, you know, just sort of evidence of malperfusion, um, then we would be compelled to, to treat it. But I think, you know, as long as you're not struggling to, to force a patient to be normoxic, like then it's not really a problem. So let's say my patient's on an FiO2 of 40% and they've got a right upper extremity set of 85%. I can very easily go up on my ventilator settings. I can increase my FiO2 a little bit. I can increase my PEEP a little bit. I can basically start managing them like their lung failure now. You know, it's when I get up to my FiO2 is at 100%, you know, my PEEP is is in a higher range. I'm, I'm maxed out on my epiprostanol and things like that. Then, uh, then I know I'm, I'm having a problem. So in terms of managing that, the question I have to ask myself is, does this patient now have both biventricular failure and respiratory failure, or do they just have respiratory failure and are starting to recover their uh, cardiac disease? And my management strategy is going to be different depending on what I see. Let's talk a little bit about just sort of the daily management of a patient on VA ECMO. What are some things that you are concerned with every day that you're looking at? Um, maybe potential complications. Um, how much adjusting do you do of the the ECMO on a daily basis? Let's look at the look at the patient and look at the look at the circuit. So start with the circuit first. So and, and we have outstanding nurse and respiratory therapy specialists whose job it is to just manage the pump while uh, a nurse manages the actual patient, which makes it a lot easier to assess for changes and things like that. But, you know, we want to make sure that um, that based on the settings we're on, that we're still getting the same flow. You know, so so flow in an ECMO circuit is actually measured. It's not calculated like it would be with a, a VAD. So, but things like uh, thrombosis, things like arterial hypertension, uh, you know, patients, patient having vent dyssynchrony or being uncomfortable can all cause the flow to drop and, and temporary flow drops are okay. Um, but if there, there's a trend towards, Hey, we're having to increase our speed to maintain the same flow, then you, you know, that's a problem. We also look at, um, pressures. So there's venous pressures, which are negative and then arterial pressures, which are positive. So extreme negative pressures can tell us things like hypovolemia, or they can tell us about um, cannula malposition, or you know kinking of the cannula, or even external pressure. You know, say someone is developing abdominal compartment syndrome, or they've got you know profound ascites, or you know um, intra-abdominal hemorrhage that can actually compress the cannula from the outside and basically cause these sort of suction events, um, which were, are shown as, as extreme negative pressures. On the other hand, um, high positive pressures can tell us about um, obstruction to flow 
return flow. So, you know, and obviously it would be obvious if a patient is hypertensive, um, but they can also tell us about uh, clot that's developing in the actual oxygenator um, that's, that's causing more turbulent blood flow and higher pressures to try to overcome. So we look at the pressures, we look at the flow, we look at the temperature. So the temperature is, is controlled on ECMO, um, but sometimes we'll have to actually add ice to the exchanger, um, to the, the heater cooler exchanger. And so that can tell us that a patient is developing the equivalent of a fever, that their metabolic demands are going up and their body temperature is starting to increase. We look at the uh, hematocrit or the hemoglobin is measured on there. Um, so it's not always completely accurate and it gets uh, calibrated on a frequent basis, but acute changes in hematocrit might tell us about something that's going on in the patient before we realize it, something like a like bleeding issue. We look at the, uh, the oxygen content coming back. So um, it's a, you know, essentially the equivalent of a mixed venous blood gas. So we look at the actual oxygen saturation. You know, extremes of low or high can be concerning for some other process that, uh, that we need to investigate further. Uh, then we look at the sweep gas. So you didn't talk about it before, but the sweep gas is essentially ventilation on ECMO. So it's a, it's a, a counterflow that basically is 100% oxygen, uh, and it's basically flowing past the semipermeable membrane that will allow oxygen to diffuse into the, the blood going through the ECMO circuit and CO2 to, um, to bleed out and then be, be excreted that way. So essentially, we use it um, to move CO2, and the faster the sweep gas, the more CO2 we're able to move. And so if a patient's sweep is increasing, can be extremely concerning that the patient is generating more CO2 or that the circuit is not moving it as effectively. So actually, you know, had a case relatively recently where the sweep gas was going up and up and up and, you know, everybody was thinking, oh, this patient's just becoming hypermetabolic or their lung disease is getting much worse. Uh, and I actually wound up setting a, a post-oxygenator gas and a pre-oxygenator gas and looking at the PCO2 gradient and realized that it was actually the oxygenator that was failing and it wasn't actually moving any CO2 because the, the function of it was actually not, uh, not there anymore. So on the other hand, if the sweep is going down, that's great because it means that the patient is actually using their lungs more and more CO2 is being, uh, is being ventilated off via the, the patient's native lungs. Physically, the specialists will look at the um, oxygenator. They'll look for clot developing. Um, it usually has you know, pretty typical places where you'll see thrombus starting to, to you know, usually at the, at the joints or at connection points. Um, but if they start seeing you know, increasing amounts or in places where we wouldn't expect it to see that may precipitate something like a, a, an oxygenator or circuit exchange. We physically look at the cannulas, the, the color of the blood in them, and then actually their physical position in the patient, making sure that they are um, at the same place where we left them, that there's, they're not moving or migrating as we you know, get fluid off of the patient and the, the skin tissue integrity is starting to change. Okay, so that, that covers the circuit. Um, and then we actually look at the patient. Um, so standard sort of critical care examinations, mental status, level of sedation, you know, lung sounds, looking for evidence of pulmonary edema, um, looking for evidence of, of abdominal compartment syndrome, 
and then one of the one of the really big things is physical exam of the extremities. So there's a, a, a painfully high frequency of ischemic limbs. Um, and it could be from actual physical obstruction of the artery with the cannula. It could be from uh, distension of the vein compressing the artery from the outside uh, based on the size of the venous cannula. It could be from uh, the state prior to ECMO cannulation where patients are on profound amounts of vasoactive drugs and they, they've developed you know, localized ischemia. But so one of the preventive things we do is before we put a patient on, we actually pre-cannulate them with a, an anti-grade perfusion catheter. So it's usually a small five French catheter that, um, that gets put in the, the, in the SFA or the, or the CFA and um, actually draws some of the blood off, the oxygenated blood off of the ECMO circuit and provides an anti-grade flow. Sometimes, you know, maybe just like two to 300 milliliters um, a minute down that leg to, uh, to sort of optimize the amount of perfusion there. And the, the sad reality is even when we do that, sometimes we still can't prevent um, extremity ischemia. So we have to really have to carefully monitor it and hopefully, um, you know, it's not something that we can't intervene on. Sometimes it, it necessitates us decannulating a patient from ECMO um, in order to salvage a limb. And sometimes it means having to just uh, sacrifice a limb for the sake of, of keeping a patient alive, allowing it to, uh, to become gangrenous and, and die off on its own. Or sometimes we actually need to do amputations uh, while patients are still on. So you you preemptively uh, put the the anti-grade perfusion catheter. Yeah, and, and you know I, yeah, and there was a time when we didn't, um, but I think there's enough there's enough incidences of of ischemia that, and then the other thing is trying to go back after the fact and put one in. <laughs> um, now that the you know the arteries are all constricted and there's already damage to the to the limb. Uh, can be even more challenging. So we think that the better part of Valor is just empirically uh, putting one in. And will you uh, routinely have a swan in patients like this? Yeah, often often we do. And one of the reasons that we often do is part of our shock algorithm, we use some of the numbers from the PA catheter to determine a degree of support. So um, we use a, a cardiac power index and we use something called the PAPI, which is the pulmonary artery pulsatility index, to basically say whether a patient has isolated left ventricular failure or um, isolated right ventricular failure or concomitant biventricular failure. So a lot of times when we you know, activate our shock team, these patients will go to the cath lab first. Um, they'll get a right heart cath. Um, they'll leave the swan in place and then they will determine the level of support either an Impella, you know, an Impella 5.0, a Tandela, or, uh, or ECMO. In the patients, now, uh, you know, almost all cardiac surgery patients have them. So when we have a post-cardiotomy ECMO, it's a patient who is not able to wean from bypass uh, or, you know, needs VV ECMO. A lot of times those patients already have a PA cath and C2, and so they just come up with that. The usefulness of it is <laughs> under debate once a patient is actually on ECMO because <laughs> you're physically drawing blood out of the, you know, out of the, the, the right side of the heart. Um, and so, you know, the index is relatively meaningless. The S calculated SVR is relatively meaningless. The one thing that I do most often look at with a swan is the, the PA diastolic. 
And again, because that, that, that is probably the closest reflection we have to the amount of pressure in the, in the left ventricle. And so if we're worried about LV distension, sometimes that can, can help us uh, narrow that down. What about the wedge? Yeah, we don't. Um, and again, because a majority of our ECMO patients are post-cardiotomy, we don't often wedge. Um, you know, we do have a lot of patients who have pulmonary artery anastomoses and things like that. And so we, we don't want to put them at risk of, of rupture. Um, but we don't feel that it's so advantageous to have that piece of information that we um, subject a patient to wedging. Mm -hmm. So perhaps uh, once they're already on ECMO, you probably could do with maybe just a central line and perhaps a CVP. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, the CVP probably won't tell you anything because again, because you're like physically draining fluid out from the, from the right atrium and, and SVC. But one of the reasons we do opt to leave this one in is because once a patient starts to recover, um, we do see them regain that. And sometimes even before the LV, we'll see them regain some RV pulsatility. So they actually start to generate a pulmonary artery waveform. And that can even be the first signs of, of recovery. And then as we transition them maybe off of ECMO onto an impella, then we can, can use that PA catheter for, uh, for ongoing titration of, of right-sided support. All right. So um, things are looking, looking good with your patient. Uh, how, do, how do you decide how to wean the impella and or the ECMO? So um, we, we have a protocolized for that. Um, and the, the decision to do a weaning trial is really based on those, uh, those parameters that we talked about. So if we're starting to see someone develop regional hypoxemia, that can be an early sign. Um, if we see somebody starting to gain aortic pulsatility in spite of full flow, that can be. And so sometimes what we'll do, we'll just do like a quick peak trial where we turn the flow down on the ECMO um, just for a couple of minutes, just to see what the LV will do in response to that. Um, but when we do a formal weaning trial, we do it under echo guidance um, because even if the hemodynamic parameters are, are okay, um, that doesn't always reflect uh, ongoing success in, in ECMO decannulation. So we do it with ECMO uh, with echo guidance, excuse me. And um, well, we'll we do either a like a focus trial where we sequentially turn down the flow on the ECMO circuit and increase the amount of inotropes and potentially the the ventilator support as we take that away with the ECMO, um, and we watch what actually happens to the LV. And we're really looking for gross function. We are looking for regional wall motion abnormalities. We are looking for the size of the LV, so the distension of it um, as you start you know, unloading um, the ECMO and you're allowing the, the LV to actually fill up. And, um, and then we look at things like, like VTI and we look for evidence of valvular dysfunction. And then if we feel that, you know, if we get all the way down to the point and we see a good amount of function or we, you know, the patient kind of meets all of the criteria, we actually go back up to full flow and then we will book them for the OR. We never decannulate VA ECMO in the ICU. We only do it in the, in the operating room. So a lot of times it, it needs vascular repair um, and it, it has the potential to, you know, to, to put the patient back onto bypass if they did fail, have a delayed failure. And down in the, down in the OR, they'll actually repeat the whole scenario again, where they'll formally wean the patient um, and make sure that they, they do okay. And unfortunately we've been 
you know, sometimes burned where a patient will do wildly successful coming off ECMO and then 48 hours later will decompensate aggressively and sometimes to the point where we can't recover them. So what we've been doing pretty frequently is, is decannulating from ECMO, but leaving the impella in place just as a, as a backup plan. And then a lot of times uh, getting those patients over to be managed by our cardiology unit. And then, you know, in the subsequent days, they'll make sure that they're doing okay with the impella and then start to wean that. And then that one can just be taken out uh, at bedside. All right. Well, Brandon, do you have anything else to... No, I guess the only other thing that I'm wondering is, um, do you feel like uh, the majority of the cases such as this, where you're putting people on VA ECMO, or maybe this also includes kind of lesser forms of support like the Impella or the Tandem Heart, um, do you feel like the majority of the patients where you're using these mechanical support devices are ones that could not be managed without them? and it's really a rescue technique, or in a lot of cases, are you using them where a patient in another center where they weren't available might be managed just kind of pharmacologically? Um, and if so, do you think that they do better because they're able to go on mechanical support? That's a really good question, and I'm not sure I actually know the correct answer. Um, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but uh, and I have a bit of a selection bias because the patients that I see typically are failing pharmacologic support. And so it's used as a rescue therapy. Um, and, and I go back and forth because physiologically, the mechanical circulatory support makes a lot of sense. You know, decreasing LV EDP, unloading, you know, perfusing organs while decreasing myocardial oxygen demand. It's fantastic. But it also comes with a whole host of other complications. I mean, just the the whole concept of ECMO is reversing the circulatory flow in the body is, is a bit mind boggling. Um, but, you know, and, and upfront, you know, in the resuscitation phase, these things always seem like the right decision. But then once you're in the ICU and you see the downstream effects and you see, you know, patients not survive or you see them develop catastrophic complications like, you know, extremity amputations or profound, you know, cerebral hemorrhages and ischemic strokes and things like that you know, the, the shine sort of wears off and, and it's a, it's a hard decision to know when to pull the trigger um, saying like, do I keep escalating vasoactive support and hope that uh, we can get better? Or, or do I just put this patient on, uh, you know, on, on ECMO and um, that'll at least, you know, protect their organs. So it, it's a, it's a, I think it's a the question that we're going to have to answer in the next couple of years as this, as this uh, increases in popularity. But I have I have definitely seen catastrophic complications of pharmacologic support and you know high escalated pharmacologic support when when mechanical circulatory support would have done much better. Um, and and you know hopefully we can get a patient through without any complications. But um, I think it's great when it works. I think it's not so great when it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> but that's a very that's a that's a great cop out answer, I'm sure. So the the jury's kind of still out at where that balance is of when the you know, the benefits are more than the risks, and maybe there is no general answer. It depends on the patients and you know a lot of the details. Mm -hmm. I think I think for sure, and um, you know every day that I don't have to make a decision on whether to uh, put a patient on ECMO is is a good day. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That's a, been a really good talk about VA ECMO. Uh, we'll have to have you back at some point to talk about LVADs. 
which are a slightly different animal to manage, but yes, <laughs> yes, they are. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for your time. Uh, thank you guys. Oh, 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 oh,